Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to Petro Nerds Podcast, episode 13. It is Thursday, April 29th, 2021. It's the eve of ExxonMobil and Chevron earnings. It is. Today, we are going to talk about a bunch of good stuff. Oil prices as usual and some high forecasts. Uh, OPEC Plus, Biden's recent speech and China references. U.S. oil demand, uh, a long hearing on U.S. oil and gas (laughs) and federal lands that both Trisha and I sat through, so you don't have to. The BP earnings call and our favorite, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the ruler of Saudi Arabia, gave a very long interview with lots to talk about. As always, we are here with our main host, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petronerds and my friend. Good to see you, Trisha. Good to see you, too. Is it nice to be back to you, like, given that intro so that that sweet Guinness voice is back in this, this uh, mix here? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't get here because I'm smart, Trisha. Uh, you're you're really missed at the crawfish boil, everybody. So it was really cool to be like, hey, Petronerds. And every, everybody's looking at me and slapping me on the back. Hey, Petronerd. And then they're like, is Ethan here? Where's Ethan? So you were very missed. Uh, well, that's good to hear. I appreciate it. Yeah. And your voice was talked about a, a lot. Quite well, a bit. That's that's great. Let's get into some real stuff that people want to hear about. Though. Absolutely. So, um, okay. So, oil prices. I mean, we're hanging out. Obviously, we, we're oil prices look decent. We're around sixty four dollars barrel. Everything's looking great. I mean, we've been hanging out at the sixty level. We've talked about this at length. OPEC plus. It wasn't. It was kind of muted. I mean, they didn't do say much. They didn't actually do much. Um, they just came out and said, "Hey, we're going to keep things steady," which we kind of assumed um, because last month they said they were going to add two million barrels a day back over the course of three months. So this is basically through from this this in April and or at the end of March. So this is April, May, June, July. So by July we should have another two million barrels a day back on the market. We won't. We'll need to look at the OPEC figures that come out this month and or come out in May, and we'll need to see the IEA figures to see what the data actually look like. But I think they'll add these barrels back. And, and I think that the market's probably going to handle it just fine. All right. Come out of the granular stuff and get big picture. Your thesis on global oil prices on average for the next 18 months. I, you keep pushing me on this, but I think <laughs> we have to get back to this whole Goldman says it's going to be 80. You know, they think 80 like ASAP. And um, you saw the forecast people. If, if you I was watching Bloomberg two nights ago, like midnight, and I heard $11,000 copper prices, $12,000 copper, $15,000 copper prices. It was like a bidding war. Everybody. It's like being in an auction with Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything, everything keeps going up in price. Goldman goes up. Oh, and somebody, I can't remember who, what the forecast was that said oil demand was going to hit over 101 million barrels per day this year. Now, we, I think it's really interesting because only a couple months ago, even a month ago, we're sitting here and all the forecasts for IEA and BP and everything are saying we're going to we're 95 million barrels a day all year. You know, we're not going to recover. So all of a sudden we're recovering. And part of this is driven. And I do think it is the U.S. perspective is that oil demand is like 20 million barrels a day. So product demand. We have not fully recovered gasoline demand, but we're getting close. And jet fuel demand is damn sure picked up in the in the U.S. Like DIA is packed when you go into like the airports are busy, like. People are definitely flying. But international air travel is still down. Still down. And we're still down global demand year on year, another 5 million barrels a day, right? Yeah. I mean, I I just, I think the India situation. So in terms of just like how the market's viewing it, it's that India is in lockdown and that's a few hundred, you know, at least a few hundred thousand barrels a day that's being immediately constrained and probably more. um, And then therefore your growth trajectory out of India is probably off. But 
you know, they'll probably go through this wave and they need to get these vaccines in place. Um, and I think that'll start that'll start they'll start opening up at some point. It's really bad there right now. So I don't want to underplay that at all. It, it all right, but good. I want to get you back to the punchline, yeah. which is that are people calling for 80 too aggressive or not? Well, I think production comes with it, because if you look at I mean, I know we don't have that many rigs running in the U.S., but we've got over 500 rigs running. Right. So I just don't see exactly how, you know, everybody thinks, well, I well, we'll get to Mohammed bin Salman's comments about the U.S. declining production a million barrels a day, million barrels a day every year for the next 10 years. Every country apparently in the world is doing that also. Right. There's two countries I'm not going to be allowed to go to, and that's going to be Saudi Arabia and China. So those are now going to be off off my list probably with this criticism. Um, but so I think could we spike to 80 given the market right now? Absolutely. If Especially with these barrels offline. So if demand was to go crazy and we saw the UK open up and we have heard that, you know, I guess it looks like Europe is going to allow Americans that are vaccinated to come over. Um, to, they're going to open up for tourism, even though some of them are still in lockdown right now. So that means that the air traffic is expected to open up sort of like July, right? People are going to be flying abroad. So I think in that time period, if we haven't seen those OPEC barrels come back and you're surging demand, I just don't think it's you're going to see jet fuel demand go through the roof just yet. It's going to take a while for all that to come into play. Um, traders may bed that up. You could see 80 for a minute. Um, but if it's sustained, if you have sustained high oil prices, production is going to come back with it. Everybody's going to produce. And OPEC, they won't be satisfied. Those countries are not going to be satisfied with a two million barrel day addition. They're going to want to bring the other barrels Just back. to be clear, you're not saying U.S. rig count is going to go through the roof because it's with or without the U.S. We'll either get OPEC quotas increase or OPEC cheating. But either way, you get production to fill that gap. Yes, I think. Well, easily. It's very, very hard to paint a picture of sustained. So Goldman and all these people putting these price tags, price tags on everything. How long is it going to be there? Tell me how long prices will be there. And I want to know the trajectory. Don't just say we're going to hit 80. We're going to hit 100. Tell me what's how does it get there? And and what happens with with supply and demand in, in that in those times? They don't want to talk about that. They just want to put a number out there and they want to get all these hits on it. Well, Traders can bid up anything, five bucks, as, as we've talked about a lot, either way, even seven bucks, either way. But you underlying fundamentals have to be there. And I think that with you have a million and a half barrels a day that could come back on Iran. We're already adding those barrels back. Libya's swinging. And you have several, at least, even after Saudi Arabia brings those barrels back and you bring the two million, two million barrels a day or the million barrel a day back that they're allowing for the rest of OPEC+. Plus, You've got a six million barrels a day sitting there. And by the way, Russia, again, again, not against Mohammed bin Salman, but I think he's wrong here in Russia. They do have spare capacity as well. Remember that everybody was producing like 11 million barrels a day and change in 2018. I mean, it's not going to be that hard for and, and remember what they were producing in March when prices were in April when they tanked prices. I mean, Saudi Arabia and Russia could go to 12 million barrels a day. It would take a little work quickly, but they could do it. So I'm just saying like, and all those other barrels that are sitting on the sidelines, they want to come back, especially these prices, because everybody's recovering so well. Their economies are recovering. Their fiscal balances look better. They just this is why why he did that interview. And when it, when all we heard on C, or the market that night when he first did it was that, oh, they want to sell a stake of the pipeline. Of course they do. Why wouldn't you want to sell a stake of your pipeline right now? I mean, and they're so, not the only ones. We've also got a, a couple other OPEC countries selling. I think it's uh, UAE and Oman are also selling assets. Stakes and pipeline. I mean, I, I need to dig into those it, a little bit. Yeah, it's energy assets across the board. So you don't do that at the bottom. No, you don't do that at the bottom. And this is a good, I mean, the timing is good. And you have to remember, this is no different than 
what where we're at, the pain that they were in and what they what they experienced and what they saw. And I think it's really important to realize that they're this is a time for them to recover. So uh, if you if we didn't have all those barrels that weren't being produced and we still have this level of demand, we've kind of explained it before in previous podcasts. I think that those price spikes, the sustained price spikes would be more likely. I just can't see production. And I'm not saying the recount goes crazy in the U.S. It certainly if you, if you don't think the recount is going to move up, continue to move up. If oil prices hit 80, you're outside your mind. It's going to continue to move up in the U.S. No, right, sorry, right. Chuck Gates and David Ramson Wood. But whether it should or not, it's going to. Yes, whether it should or not, at $80, almost everybody's assessments, except the most pessimistic people, are that the that 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 definitely overcomes the marginal cost of production for even secondary and tertiary PUDs in the U.S., for sure. And I think what people also have to realize, and this is something that I have um, spent a little bit of time in the past couple of weeks looking at, is that, you know, there are certainly pains that are happening within the U.S., and we've touched on the service sector a little bit, but in the... You know, the rig count and the frack spread are not matching up. So we used to be able to sort of, you had a rig count and you could, you could basically do a division by three or whatever and be like, that's how many frack spreads we need. And this is what we need for this production. We'll see what, you know, uh, what Liberty Oilfield Services is on their earnings call. But the problem is. Wait, I think they had it. Did they just have it? Yeah. I missed it. Sorry, I have not yeah. caught up on that yet. Yeah, they did. And um, it rallied pretty hard. We will be go- I will be going to that in detail <laughs> and other, and other earnings call in the next podcast. But um, we're relatively focused on this one. So. There's a couple things, and I don't know what they said on on in terms of frack spreads. And to, they probably didn't tell us how much they're using and how much they have sitting on the sidelines. But I know that there's a lot of companies that basically have a couple dedicated crews, big companies in the Permian that might have a couple dedicated crews, and then they have a couple. They have like the one-offs, right? They're just using a frack crew that's they're not using for sustained stuff, and that's a decent amount. And the problem with that is, is that you can't raise prices and you don't have the tightness that you need in the, in the Permian or elsewhere for the service sector to actually raise prices. And I assume it's happening. It's going to. And especially if prices are to go up and we're adding rigs, you're going to see there's going to be repricing in the rigs and there's going to be repricing on the frack spreads. But I don't think what I'm saying is frack spreads, frack fleets out there today are not fully utilized. And therefore, if you're not fully utilized, I don't think you can command the, the prices that you want. Yeah, so uh, shout out to Chris Wright. It was a very good quarter. They beat, uh, they doubled their facts at EBITDA uh, consensus. So that, that was a pretty nice beat. Stock was up 12%. Um, they said, uh, buoyed by worldwide vaccine distribution campaigns together with fiscal and monetary stimulus, global economic growth expectations are increasingly more constructive. Um, so they basically say that frac activity is at maintenance, maintenance levels. At maintenance levels. So that's, yeah. and that's really good. And they are the, I mean, they have captured a decent amount of market share. Obviously they bought, they bought Slumberger, so they the one some, but even then I would say, I would just caution a little bit in just saying like, look, our, I don't think all of the maintenance levels, but certainly all the Slumberger frac crews that they had and all the frac spreads or frac fleets and all their frac fleets are not being fully utilized right now um, because that just you just don't not 100% utilized and that you have a chunk of the market in the Permian Basin that's not fully that's not fully using them they don't they don't have dedicated frac crews that are just going like crazy and I'm watching we're watching the the, the well additions closely so I mean sort of stay tuned for seeing where where production and and that goes but I do think that we are adding wells and we're adding rec- you can't continue to add the recount and expect that production is going to stay flat. It is going to to eke up. 
Um, and that was another. Mohammed bin Salman said we're at 10 million barrels per day. We're producing 11 million barrels per day. Are you going to skip ahead to that? I no, thought we we're going to do that I know. at the end. We're going to do that at the end. Right, I just I can't, I just can't help myself because there. there's, there's things. Um, that being said, we still have oh. over a thousand. We have like 1,200 stacked rigs in the U.S. I just think that's important to point out. I mean, it's that's, it's a lot. So we're, we're over 500 rigs total in the U.S., but we still have a lot stacked. So I'm, I'm still concerned about the ability to pull staffing back in to execute that because we've punished some people in the last year and made them move elsewhere. And you can see the demographic changes within Texas, for example, with I think Odessa lost some people to some cities. So uh, clearly some pain there. And it may be that uh, service cost inflation has to accommodate, you know, paying more people, paying people to get them back to the rigs. Well, and I think that's this. I think this kind of gets into this Fraxburg thing I'm commenting is that everybody's trying to be so efficient with what they have. So, you know, you're seeing rigs drill longer laterals and you're seeing everybody's trying to eke out more with less. And so that goes to people, too. And so then when demand ramps up, you will literally have less and things are going. And I think there's tightness and in, in facets of this already. So we're going to get to a point where things get stickier than they are and you won't have enough. It'll come back. I mean, you pay people enough and they're going to come back to work. So it, this is a boom and bust industry. I mean, I always tell people this, but I mean, I grew up around it my entire life and it is boom and bust. And this is, I mean, while it's very, very different than in previous busts, this happens, you know? Uh, well, I will raise my hand and say that uh, the financial side of the business is certainly boom and bust as well. It is. It's a, so, it's painful. <laughs> so that seems like a natural segue. Let's move on to <laughs> natural segue. Yes. The, the hearing on federal oil and gas leasing. Hold on. We're going back to. Oh, uh, here we I go. Know. We, we didn't finish the Biden speech and <laughs> the oil demand. Okay. All okay. right. Well, let's so go. To, yeah. I want to wrap this. So just wrapping this up on oil demand inflation, I think we definitely have, um, you know, Powell's keeping inter, I mean, Powell's keeping things flat, um, still st sticking with quantitative easing and asset purchasing, which is a little bit shocking. And, you know, Jim Cramer I, must be smoking something every morning when he wakes up because he says that there just isn't inflation. It's very segmented. You know, if you have inflation in food, you have inflation. So like the countries around the world, develop, developing countries are saying they have food inflation. So if you have food inflation, it's called real inflation. I mean, that's just not, it's not just oil and it's not just copper. Like there's real inflation out there. So it's not just lumber, like that all these things are very real. Um, so I think that although Powell's saying it's going to be short term and it's going to subside. So that's why he's basically saying things are going to be okay. I think that is teeing up ourselves up for some problems. And if oil prices continue to climb as Goldman, everybody says, especially if we were to hit 80, that would be very, very messy. It's going to take that inflation thing and, and skyrocket. Um, but that hasn't quite happened yet. Well, and I'm sure that anybody who's out there actually working now is seeing the, the price of motor fuels as an impact on their business. Yeah. I mean, it's, it matters now. Um, you're going to you're going to see it. And as you know, we were talking before um, offline before this started. I mean, there's several articles Bloomberg's had on just the the demand growth in the used auto sales are growing. So, I mean, the used auto market is huge. So if you have a used vehicle um, and I mean, you could sell it for, for a lot of money and traffic is up everywhere. So traffic is up everywhere. And this is part of the whole demand story is because people don't want to take public transportation. And so we are actually seeing higher traffic in certain places than pre-COVID because as people are trying to get back to do things, they don't want to take public transportation. I would have gotten to your house for this podcast today a lot quicker had I been on the train than yeah. in my car. Yes. For um, sure. Yeah. This is why he comes to me now. And, and I, yeah, I don't even have a vehicle that's licensed to come to you. So, uh, <laughs> 
But yes, that's very true. So anyways, that that's all bullish for, for oil demand. Um, but it, Biden's had this speech last night, if you watched it, um, that it was also basically wasn't a State of the Union because it's technically his first address to, to both sides of Congress. Um, it basically was a State of the Union. It was r- a sub two hours, but it was pretty long. And um, it was very similar to the other ones. I mean, it was a basically he was pitching another another two trillion dollar package. Shocking. Oh, we love these twos. So we did the two trillion dollar stimulus package. We have this $2 trillion, you know, uh, infrastructure plan, and now we've got another $2 trillion family plan. Um, so we're at $6 trillion, although $4 trillion of that is not going to be going to the deficit. It's going to be taxed, um, but it's only going to be taxed. And I am being lippy here because somebody, ha- it has to be okay to criticize this guy. And it ha- you can be a little funny with it, too. Well, I'm going to um, play devil's advocate uh, and say that it's not just, so let's say the Democrats tax and spend mm-hmm. classic. Yeah. The Republicans deficit and spend. Totally true. Classic. Classic. Basically, centralized governments spend a lot of money. Yes. Very true. And, and I mean, you could say Trump got so much flack for cutting taxes and lots of criticism and everything. I just think it's also fair to give Biden plenty of flack because this is what we are seeing within these things are very, very progressive. So we're talking about free preschool. We're talking about free um, well, community college and free at the point of purchase yeah well it's just the point is that and i'm not saying those are bad preschool isn't it's a good thing i'm and and community colleges all these things are good things but somebody has to pay for them and i am definitely fiscally conservative and you can't just uh assume that you know the way he positions this he didn't talk about who was really going to pay for it he only that he said that it wouldn't increase the deficit and that it would only impact three tenths of one percent of the population and if you weren't making over four hundred thousand dollars you weren't going to feel it well you know, America is based on a lot of people do wanting to make more than $400,000. There's a goal in some people's lives to get ahead of that. And it's interesting because if you listen to, and I, I tweeted well, this. we are all temporarily dispossessed millionaires. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> if you listen to the Potomac Review, and I didn't mean to tweet the cut. I didn't even realize. I do not listen to a lot of conservative stuff because I, I don't like being told how to Because you to don't think. need reinforcement. Um, well, I mean, I just like <laughs> making my opinion. I like listening to more liberal stuff so I, I can make sure I'm thinking about things correctly. Um, um, but so the Potomac Review, there was just the comments and the folks on it were explaining the whole tax break. And it, he did explain they did explain that this they were thinking of going after S-Corps, which before they weren't going to go after S-Corps. Most LLCs are S-Corps for a number of reasons. And LLCs are your small businesses. So this whole we're not going after small businesses or only 400,000. That's just that's a lie. You're going after. Okay, So bring this back to the energy market for our well, listeners, please. I, I'm bringing it back to the energy market because I think this is all comes back to you can't spend this money without having some either you have to pay for it some way or you have to have inflation. And this whole federal hearing or mm. this hearing on federal oil and gas leasing, which we'll get to, that was a lot about money. That was how much money these states were losing and how much money that, you know, maybe they were going to increase with royalties. And we'll get to that in a second. But the point is, is that you can't have these infrastructure plans um, green or not, not green. They have to be, you have to pay for it somehow. Um, and this was, this one is the family plan, but it's interwoven with, you know, charging stations and everything, which you talked about. And these China references, this is why I want to talk about this. So Every speech he brings about, he talks about China and it being a, a thread that we're fighting, you know, that China is saying that democracy won't work. And so we have to prove China wrong that democracy does work. And 
I don't like it. I really don't like, you know, one, allowing China the, that, to be able to have that influence on us, to be able to say that. And one, you're, you're basically saying that they're right by even explaining it, saying, you know, China says this, so we need to prove them wrong. Well, democracy, when, when China talks about democracy and they do use those words, a rule of law, they mean it completely differently. Like they don't have rule of law and they don't have democracy in the same way as we do. And when they criticize it, they criticize basically that we can't get things done. There's a reason why, because you can't just push things through. We do have democracy. And I think it's very hypocritical for Biden to pass, you know, as many executive orders as he has passed and then to talk about democracy and to be standing in front of Congress explaining that. Like, if you really wanted it to be democratic, you would have put that stuff forward in front of Congress to do it. But you didn't think it was going to pass because it's so intense. It is so serious. That is very like China. That is extremely autocratic. And I'm not saying Trump did a ton of that. Previous presidents have done tons of executive orders. So that's that's something that we do now. But it doesn't make it okay. Um, and it doesn't mean that it is democratic in any fashion. And it's not okay to com- it's not okay to reference China when you want to and then not reference them when you don't. But it's also I was listening to a podcast today and it was Elizabeth Economy, who I've referenced this book, um, The Third Revolution, and she's talking about Xi Jinping. And she explains really clearly in this recent podcast on the China chessboard um, with CSIS. And she explains really clearly that, you know, China is a perfect example of they do have the biggest electric auto market. So people reference this uh, um, on the, in the green community, they reference it a lot, is that our lunch is being eaten and Biden is to buy China because they own the electric car market. They have the biggest one because they also have the largest population. It is not the best one. Like they don't have Tesla. They're just getting Tesla and they're like, we have Tesla. You know, it is a superior technology. You know, as much as I like some things about Elon Musk and don't like other ones, it is a superior battery. They do not have that in China. It is a fraudulent, massively fraudulent system. It is top down. And if you want an example of where it can go wrong of how not to do it, that's it. So don't top down this. I mean, so when people are referencing China and thinking about this, the way they fault, it's, it's faulted because it is, is top down innovation, which is not innovation. It's just the government telling them it's riddled with corruption and subsidies and those subsidies cause massive corruption. So it's, it's just not a really efficient and working system. There's a reason why they still consume the the amount of oil that they consume today and they import all that crude oil because that whole electric fuel system hasn't actually worked, you know, to the extent that we think it has in practice. Well, you guys didn't know that Trisha was going to channel cow bass today, but uh, I didn't either. (laughs) So that's good. So uh, I'm trying to get Trisha to move to Wyoming and not because I don't like her in Denver, but because I think she needs to run for Congress because she could just rant and rave for an hour. And uh, I think she'd do well. Um, I would would be happy to take on AOC in a debate. One one really interesting thing that um, there's a, an author and a consultant who I think is uh, fairly appreciated, but but had a point this week that that has been missed by the mainstream, as far as I can tell. Uh, Peter Zion, who talked about data coming out of China, which suggests that their population has peaked, which I find fascinating for a number of reasons, because, you know, it's the this big giant market and the prior expectation was that their population was peaking in 2030s sometime. And apparently that's been pulled forward either because of more COVID deaths or because their birth rate is declining or some, some combination thereof. I think it has fascinating implications for uh, the, the broader market, uh, geopolitical implications. I was talking to my friend who's a Commodore in the Navy about this. He was, you know, running ships in the South China Sea to uh, uh, help security in the region. Um, but if indeed China's population is declining, we're still going to get uh, increased energy intensity. But the absence of that population growth has a big impact on energy demand forecasts. 
Yes, and that's a that's it's a really great point. Um, and I'm glad well, you brought occasionally it. I um, do make you one. make really good points. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad you brought it to that because I I saw the same note and the the other podcast I listened today was um well. Elizabeth economy was explaining that basically that they have peaked. So I don't know if you saw that China did come out and they debunked that. And they said, no, we are, our population mm. is still increasing. Of course, they're going to say that. Um, so they're going to have to say that because that's, that's part of the whole trajectory and they don't want things looking bad. They have changed their policy from one child to two, the to a two child policy, but it hasn't changed everything. And the divorce rates high um, and people, people are becoming educated when you educate women, when people make more money, it just, it sort of naturally declines. It does have implications for long run growth trajectory. I think for, for oil demand, not as much, I, I think for energy is a little bit different because as we've noticed, um, and this is, this comes back to the Biden speech a little bit, but everyone keeps referencing, you know, their ability to build transmission lines and everything and how sophisticated it is. Again, it is not that sophisticated when it's 65% coal. And um, people always reference, you hear a lot of people, liberal, or I'm sorry, you hear a lot of conservative podcasts and people saying, oh my gosh, 60% coal and it's all coal. It, and oh, they're building new coal-fired power plants. They are, you can, there's a website, just Google it. Google Chinese coal-fired power plants. You can see actually every single one that's in existence, all the new ones that are permitted, all the ones that are in construction and the new ones that are, so the ones you know- I actually think that's Michael Bloomberg's website that tracks it. It's the energy, tra it's the um, track carbon, not carbon tracker. It's a tracker website, maps all of it. It's awesome to look at. It, this isn't fiction, people. It's, it's We're talking dozens and dozens of power plants. And the reason they're doing that, as we've mentioned before, is, um, and the reason they're probably less efficient is because they're building them for peak loads, right? So they're not using all of them all the time at full capacity, which is worse because then they become more inefficient and then you're only building them to your, your peak loads and your peak demand of everything, which means they're going to have the power, but you're going to have more emissions and you're, they're just not going to be nearly as efficient. So when, when um, Biden last week did the whole emissions agreement with China. And this is important to think about is that they said, oh, yeah, we're in agreement. It was nothing formal, right? They just said that they were in agreement. Of course, they're going to say that. They have every incentive to, and this is where you, you have to do enough research on China to understand how they want to be a part of the rule, the order of the world, how they want to literally run the, the rule structure and global governance. So, of course, they're going to engage in those dialogues and say, yes, we, we're going to contribute to this. We're going to do it. Doesn't mean they're going to actually do anything. I mean, you would have to concretely like lay things out to say that you're going to do something. So you have to basically play the part and agree to it and maybe do some things, little things here at home, um, tinker around and he's building electric cars and all that stuff. But it doesn't mean that it's sincere because the most important thing for him is maintaining power. And his, his regime is really about not just power internally, but it's externally and projecting that and they are projecting that power. So, and that's going to take energy. And if it means fighting emissions or it means consuming energy and projecting that power, um, you can bet your ass it's going to be consuming energy and projecting that power. Well, I unequivocally believe that the Chinese are taking us for a ride and they're going to do exactly what suits their interests and anything, any assumption other than that is just naive. It, so we came out this week that the Chinese are going to buy a 1% stake in Aramco through maybe one of their vehicles. It's, it's, uh, uh, you know, we, they haven't determined exactly which one, but that's, that's the news. That's so the a, one that, a $20 billion oh, stake. Yeah. yeah. Um, they have a bilateral agreement with the Iranians, which is undercutting our foreign policy. So they are getting their, um, uh, posture in the middle East squared away while we are basically getting our ass handed to us. 
That's the way I see it. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at it, if you look at their role in the Middle East over time, and we've kind of explained this before, but you have to look at like the Chinese strategy is very like all hands on deck, sort of do everything and then use what works later. Mm. And that this was before Xi Jinping. It wasn't. And you wrote your thesis on that, I did, right? Yeah. I did write my thesis <laughs> on that, my dissertation on it. So I think that what people, and this is, I listened to two podcasts today that I thought were interesting because a woman, it's a paper that I have, I'm really excited to read on decoding when China talks about rule of law or when China talks about you know, democracy, that they don't mean the same things. Literally, they don't mean the same things because rule of law in China is um, literally means that like rule of law is beholden to the communist party. So the communist party sets that, that is the game set match. So if the communist party says they're going to do something, nobody can challenge that. Um, So it's very, very different. So when we, I think the um, the guy on this on the CSIS podcast was asking Elizabeth Economy, why didn't we see Xi Jinping coming? Why didn't we see this sort of authoritarian nature? And she she kind of balked at it and just said, you know, no one could have. And he was like, really? And I thought, really? I mean, I, I didn't say like I didn't predict in college that Xi Jinping was coming, but there was nothing about China's strategy be, even before him that was super peaceful. I mean, you right. had to want to believe that. And you could see it in the literature and everything, but you had to really want to believe that it was a very, very peaceful rise. And now it's, it's, there was an option for that. There, there was a more sort of liberal order that could have happened. It, you know, it was like 50, 50. And now with Xi Jinping, it's over and done with. Like, I didn't realize that after the, um, after the meeting in Alaska, they were selling, they're selling t-shirts in China that were just like, I mean, basically, you know, they don't want to be told what to do. So they have, a, they're very, having a very anti-Western vibe now. And I'm not, I'm sure that's not every one, but that's a real, it's a real thing that's happening in China. And so they, they just don't like the West getting involved and telling them what to do. And Xi Jinping has done a really good job the way Mohammed bin Salman and Putin do it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, whenever we say anything or whenever anything happens to China, they're just like, well, this is the West and this is just the West manipulating us. So, you know, we want to do this stuff in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is ours. And this is just the West trying to get involved and intervene. And it's like, well, no, you're changing every rule in Hong Kong to where there is no elections. You've taken out all the books on democracy at the libraries, and now you're changing the rule to where dissidents, you're going to be able to take them back to China and, and imprison them. So, I mean, this is just what's happening. And then everybody on these podcasts, these scholars of China are like, they kind of joke. It's a little sad about Taiwan, but they're like, well, they haven't taken over Taiwan yet. And you're like, yet? Like, it's it's like, it's impending? It's like, imminent. It's yeah. imminent? Like, well, all you need to know about China is three things. Number one, on TikTok, you can't mention the Tiananmen Square Massacre. So the people on TikTok call it the Cinnamon Square Massacre. <laughs> so they're using That's, code words and yep. posting and I'm sure tank, that gets- tank Man, which is one of the biggest symbols of uh, political freedom ever, which most people in China probably haven't ever seen because it's suppressed by the media. The second is that you can't buy a house in the U.S. or if you can, you got to pay 20 percent over ask. Where is the housing inventory available? Hong Kong. Yep. There's a lot of houses for sale in Hong Kong. I'm sure there are a lot of houses for sale in Hong Kong. Um, Yeah, no, I think it's just, it's it's one of these things that people think is... um, I mean, people think you can you can go down a lot of different levels of research um, and it doesn't get much better. Like it's not like the the theories get better. So it's really important to think of China in the context of how we think about energy. And this is what I liked about both these podcasts is both these scholars were explaining like and especially Elizabeth Economy was that you can't have both. I mean, she was very uh, appreciative of Biden's policy so far on China and she liked all of it, except she said you cannot dissect um, you cannot dissect you know, climate policy and something else. It is no like, hey, we'll work with you on this, but on this other stuff, let's let's keep the climate thing going and we'll work with you on this. You can't. And it, I come back to this because 
we are getting, the world is getting 80% of their solar panels from China. We know that 50% of them are coming from Xinjiang. We know that Xinjiang is, it's not, not just forced labor, but we know these are probably concentration camps and Lord only knows what else is going on there. So this is the time for the world to wake up and say, maybe we have to slow down on our, our imports of solar panels. And already I'm hearing people saying, well, we're just going to make sure they don't come from Xinjiang. Like, but you're okay with them coming from China even and they're doing this? Like, no, it's either you got to stand up for it. And it's not, that you, it's not that you have to be anti-solar. It's just that like maybe take a pause on that and you pivot to wind a little bit and you figure that out until you can figure it out. Like these are just going to be the natural things that happen as you're trying to in this trend energy transition. If you're trying to do that, you're going to have to be conscientious that if it's coming from China, it's going to be dirty and dirty in a lot of different ways than just coal. And seen. All right. Yep. So can we move on to U.S. hearing on yes, federal oil and gas we leasing now? Can. I think this is okay. a natural segue. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, folks. So bringing her back to reality here. Here we go. Okay. All right. U.S. hearing on federal oil and gas leasing. So yes, it was two and a half hours. We both listened to it separately. Yes. Um, it was pretty interesting. There were some sparks. There were some sparks. I mean, it was it was long winded. It. I thought it echoed a lot of the same things we heard in the first. Um, in the in the you know the the hearing the, or the not the hearing but the um, the forum that we both listened to on oil and gas leasing. Um, so this was a hearing, and you had multi Senator Brasso Murkowski um, Mansion was chairing it, right? Um, yes. So he's chairing it. He seemed to play be playing both sides. You know, like this is good, this is bad. But uh, the woman from uh, the woman from BLM was there. Not a wolf culver. Yeah, not a wolf culver. So a couple things that stuck out to me was that um, one is the the anger from Wyoming um, and the anger from the states that were basically the, feeling the brunt of the impact. So Alaska and Wyoming essentially saying, look, when you freeze oil, when you freeze oil and gas leasing, because the climate change, the executive order on climate change, which was referenced a gazillion times, it's referenced by the BLM a lot. This is, I think it's 14008. Um, that executive on climate change suspended all leasing so no more leasing on federal land and they say well we are still doing permits right so they've actually say they approved 500 permits since january they did have that moratorium on permits they have since started a, a, approving permits and i have actually seen that in my data as well we are seeing pr permits approved in new mexico um and there's a lot in the pipeline interesting vicky Hollub. Um, I got to give her some major props on this one because she came she in. She did a great job. She did. She really did a great job. And she, I give her, I, I've criticized her um, and I know her. She's a, she's a nice woman, but I have criticized her publicly in terms of some of the, the, you know, criticizing that the purchase and everything of that company. But she did a really great job of saying when they asked her the hard questions, she answered them. And she did say, you know, is this, she, somebody said, is it a change of course on the permitting? Um, and she said, look, we're, we've asked for extensions on a lot of permits. And she said, it is historically, you would get those extensions. It was a, that's what would happen. And she said, this does seem like a change of course, because we are not getting the extensions. So the point of the extensions on permits guys is that you have permits, basically federal permits are two years and they expire. So it's not like you can just, you can extend them. And I think that's what they're trying to do is, is folks try to extend these permits. My so, biggest issue with the whole thing was not a culver acting as if the permitting moratorium did not have any impact on revenue. Yes. And I mean, 
Look, they, the, the, wing, the, the progressive wing of the party has been very clear that they want to end oil and gas leasing to leave it in the ground to stop U.S. production. And I don't understand why they don't just own that position and just say, we, yes, we are trying to suppress oil and gas production. Because that's, why that, are they acting as if that's not the motivation? Just, just own it. You they, know? Don't wanna own, they don't want to own it because they want to make it very peaceful that, you know, that's not what we're doing. We're not trying mm. to prevent. Well, bullshit. You <laughs> are. You're trying to penal. I mean, if you didn't. So they uh, both brought multiple Multiple gentlemen, I think, from Wyoming mentioned that you didn't have to actually suspend leasing in order to do this review. And they're absolutely correct in that. So why did they have to stop leasing on federal oil and gas leases and cancel the first and second rounds that we were supposed to have this year, which were by, they were legally binding? So they why did they cancel them? Couldn't they have done this review whilst doing those leases? And the point is, is that Biden wanted to send a signal that they're going after oil and gas production. So but then they also want to send the signal. You know, they want to tell the American people that they're not actually killing it. Um, so this is what they say. And Culver, she's put in a tight position. Her attitude is not. I'm just reading it as as you can see. And it's not favorable to oil and gas. I mean, when she gets a chance to take a shot, she she takes it as politically correct. She takes it in the P, most PC format she can. But when she's asked, you know, um, and there's a snarkiness to it when she's asked, like, well, you know, they reference 12 and a half percent royalties were set in 1920. You know, all these things were set back then. Of, yes, they were set then. Could they be higher? Absolutely. But they, when they talk about leases, like, how much does I love it when they talk about the leases that didn't get sold and how they go over the counter for like a dollar? Well, hello, it's geology. You, this is oil and gas. You don't buy it's a it, you don't buy something that has no value. So yes, yeah, somebody might pick that up because you know they're going to do enough exploration work. This has happened in the powder. Lots of companies do this. Is kind of natural oil and gas. And by the way, this isn't going to be that different when we were if we start if we ever you know look at lithium or we're trying to mine for stuff. They're going to do the same stuff. They're going to pick up these leases. Some of it may be perspective. Some of it may not. And but the stuff that really is is going to get bid up, and they're going to get they're going to get bonus bids, and they're going to get all kinds of money for it. And I think it was the uh, governor or senator from Wyoming who said, "Look, even though the royalties are lower, the permitting is harder. So the permitting compliance is harder and more expensive. That's right. Why some of the reasons the royalty is lower. Um, so it's clear that if if they do, I, I mean, it seems to me like they probably let leasing go forward, but in a very restricted fashion. So it's not like you're going to be you if you're an oil and gas, you should be super excited." that it's going to get much better. But it seems like they'll let it go forward, although it's very clear to me that they're going to jack up royalties like crazy because they're going to try to offset what they think they're going to do. From my humble opinion, I think they're going to limit the leasing. Very, they're going to limit it um, and think that just wherever there's federal land, of course, somebody will want to drill, even though if it's not prospective, they'll limit the leasing, they'll jack up the prices, they'll increase the bonus bids, they'll jack up the royalty rates, and no one's going to... Raise, and raise the bonding. Yeah, and no one's going to do it. So they're not going to get the money they need. And they did explain that it is the, the oil con or the water and conservation, the wildlife fund is 100%. Our, our conservation wildlife fund is 100% exclusively paid for by federal oil, oil and gas leases in offshore on offshore. So there's a lot of money, you know, hundreds of millions that go into Wyoming. And what was his numbers? Senator Brasso and the governor were mentioning numbers that. Well, I think they said $4.2 billion for the treasury, half that amount in total, maybe half that amount to the states. I, I don't recall the exact figures. It was but a few the, hundred million. It, yeah, it was but several. The, the numbers, the numbers for more rural states like Wyoming 
and Alaska and New Mexico are significant with New Mexico having 40% of its budget coming from oil and gas yep. activity. And when you're talking about, I think what they were mentioning on the leasing, and I think it's important to think about this is that the, it was a, it's a scary freeze to, to states like Alaska and and um, states like Alaska and Wyoming and New Mexico because you're sending a signal to oil and gas that you're not going to be doing anything. And so much of that revenue is coming from federal land. So if there's no new leases, you're sending a signal to these companies that they're going to need to pivot. And they do. They, they absolutely are pivoting. No company is sitting here with massive exposure to Wyoming thinking they feel they're in a great position. They're thinking, what the hell are they going to do? And it's business. This is no different than if if somebody said, look, you're not going to be your solar company and you're not going to be able to get your solar panels for the next two years from China. You're going to be freaking out. What are you going to do? I mean, it's, I mean, or you're going to say, we're going to take a pause on, we're going to take a pause on leasing on, on, on wind, on wind land on where you're going to put that on, per, on the le- just the leasing of the land. We're going to take a, t- a pause. We don't know when we're going to stop that pause, but we got to study it. I mean, companies would get nervous. They wouldn't know what to do. This is no different. Um, so it's a pause, but it's indefinite. And they kept asking, uh, not a Culver, everyone kept asking her, so how much is this costing? And she says, well, no near term impact. She said no near term impacts. And I mean, Wyoming is already saying we already have near term impacts because we've missed lease sales and those lease yeah. sales give us multiple millions. So we already have near term money that we normally would have. Had. Plus, they've suffered from 2020. So get to realize that the states feel these impacts. And I know the other side in the environmental community would say, look, but we have to move away from oil and gas. So eventually got to have to do this. The problem is all of this is going after production. It's not going after consumption. So it drives me bananas because when all these, I didn't even know these numbers, they were like 25% because the, the industry people kept saying, you know, it, it's not 25% Western Alliance. It's and, 1%. Yeah. So there was emissions. emissions. So I guess there was a study and you probably heard it too, where they explained that a full life cycle study, and it maybe was not a Culver who explained this, that there was a full life cycle study of emissions that from all the crude oil and natural gas produced on federal land after consumption. So the full life cycle, it was 25% of us emissions, um, which still I would beg to, we probably need to dig into that a little bit more, but the reality was, is so that's full life cycle. Um, that's after combustion and everything. And who knows when that study was actually, I think that was an old 2018 study, maybe older, but the reality is, was is less than 1%. The emissions from production are less than 1%. So, and if you're talking about full life cycle, it, this is just where it gets really unfair about saying, you know, somebody did mention it that were, I think it was Murkowski that was saying we're importing more crude importing oil. Importing more crude oil from Russia yep. than from Alaska yes. into the lower 48. And that's crazy. And that there is yes, no, is. there is no, um, carbon tracking <clears throat> life cycle emissions on that shit. So that, I mean, you have to look at the imports we have. And in California is known for that because it fits the, that type of crude fits into the refineries really well. And I knew that California takes in a decent amount of Russian crude because um, they have the ports and they were never willing to do crude by rail. They didn't want to take in crude by rail into those re those refineries, but that all of that, like Murkowski really laid in hard of, um, she was intense. I gave, I give her some credit too, cause she wasn't going to back down at all on this. And she was explaining, I think I like the way she characterized business and that, um, and I don't, I would love to have an expert on this podcast or somebody talk to us about, um, the intertwining of federal land and native American land, um, and how this gets messy because we heard this in that hearing. We heard this from the tribal, the tribal communities and on that, the BLM hearing, um, that, it's not clean. It's not just you 100% have tribal land or you have federal land and it gets interwoven and in Alaska it clearly does. So she was explaining that um, 
basically the National Petroleum Reserve um, and other portions of were also tribal land and they were not consulted. So basically, once they did this freeze uh, on leasing, um, tribal communities were impacted and there was no consultation, which is in violation of an executive order that was passed in um, the year 2000. Well, one of the points on the, the commingled minerals is where in places like Wyoming, where you have some of the patchwork land grants for the railroads. So they, the railroads got, uh, it's basically like crosshatch every other right. section. And then the federal lands were in between that. So if you want to go do a development by the virtue of the reservoir, you have to have both parties at the table. Yeah, I just want to talk to an expert who knows like where there's actual examples of federal, state and tribal lands that intertwine, because it does mean that that tribal sovereignty, um, it's like who supersedes that. And I think one of these senators or one of these governors actually also mentioned that, hey, as a royalty owner, because they were explaining the 12 and a half percent, they were saying as a royalty owner, it's not just these fr the freezing of this stuff, you're impacting royalty owners and royalty owners are can be. Um, it's not always one entity. So it's not just the federal government who has all those roads. It's not just a private owner or just a tribal owner. They can be mixed. And therefore, that might also be illegal. Well, I know most of our, our listeners are probably down in Texas, but a lot of this is a legacy of the actual Trans-Alaska Pipeline deal. Well, they created the Alaska Na Native Claims Settlement Act to um, basically horse trade to get the taps done. So... Um, that's where a lot of this commingled uh, uh, native power and uh, royalty issues in Alaska come from. It's kind of fascinating and unique in, in the U.S. Yeah, I still would really like to go up to Alaska. And I, I, I think we need to have one of these folks on the podcast and sure. talk well, about it. Cause well, once you make a ton of money at Petronards this year, we'll uh, we'll, a, we'll do a podcast up um, there and, and on a fishing boat. How about that? That sounds great. Um, we'll go catch the full cycle. Uh, their production <laughs> is declining um, in Alaska. Like, and I mean, production is declining in Colorado. Production is declining in Wyoming. Production is declining in Alaska. It's going to continue to decline in California in all these places. But um, the the comments by who is the gentleman that that got mad at um, the governor of Wyoming for said, well, I can't believe, you know, why did you why did you sue them? Because Wyoming has sued um, or is is look, taking yeah, they have sued the administration on the executive order to on leasing. And they said, why did you go ahead and why did you enact confrontation when you could have talked to us about this? And I thought, well, nobody talked to these states before the executive order. There was no consultation with tribal lands. There was no consultation with anyone. The other thing that's interesting is that this did get to to your point on that, that when we when they banned the or had the moratorium on um, permitting, this is thing intertwined in that really in a weird way. So, you know, we're talking about this banning on leasing. So there is a suspension on all federal oil and gas leasing onshore and offshore. Um, the ban on the permitting has been lifted and that was a 60 day moratorium. And it was just kind of like it seems like dirty, it's dirty politics. Like you just have this acting secretary of interior throw this in. You included tribal lands, but that wasn't legal. So you took that out. And then you had the 60 day suspension. Like, why did you do that? Was it to scare people? Was it to show people that you had the power to do it? Was it to um, was it to manhandle on the politics side? Like, what was the purpose of that? Well, elections have consequences and the Republicans better do a better job if they want to not have these government agencies knock down industry. Well, I mean, and doesn't this when you're thinking when I'm thinking about these. So this this 
federal land, you know, doing this stuff, federal, I'm thinking about pipelines and I'm thinking about, well, look, if you want to, if you want to tweak FERC, I mean, you're going to have to do these transmission lines, you know, Biden wants to build, you know, redo all the transmission lines. And, you know, it's harder in a democracy to do that because in China, you just damn well, you just build it because you bulldoze through people and you don't ask them and you, the reason we have NIMBYism, people don't want stuff in the backyard. It is going to be hard to get big transmission projects done. I know that there's some interest in changing some of the regulatory things to do that. Well, interestingly, just as an aside, yeah. the Supreme Court is is reviewing uh, took cert on Penny's pipeline yes. on eminent domain, which is this fascinating is why- because that's been a precedent for, I think, about 80 years. So we'll see if uh, any of that changes. And what's interesting about that is forget that it's about a pipeline. If, this is why I bring if, this up. If we want to have renewables power of the U.S., the amount of land that would create would take is extraordinary. And you better believe to build the transmission and to build thousands and thousands of acres of solar and wind farms, you're going to need eminent domain yeah, to execute that. You will need eminent domain. That was why I brought it up. Is so that this does this really does have implications on the renewable side. And the other the other piece of it is just that, and increasingly, and this is from you know I've been speaking with a lot of folks that are investing in renewables and have invested are investing in oil and gas as well, and the people are getting increasingly anxious about just the technical feasibility of these policies of that in 2030, it's 100%, uh, 100% green, clean grid. The technology does not yet exist. So our, I don't understand how this is like, we're planning for it. We're going to, we're going to spend for something for technology that doesn't exist. And I'm not saying it can't exist that you can't get there, but you have to it's very hard for people to do the math to say like, and it's very hard for to get people to spend $6 trillion of all this damn spending that you want to spend on something that does not yet exist. Right. Well, a couple points there. So the first is that I think, you know, technically, is it feasible that we could go um, power everything off of, of renewables? Um, the, a Stanford uh, scientist put out a, a paper that said, yeah, we could do that requires massive investment but let's just let's just say that you can do that what i don't hear is anybody saying let's do that but yeah it's going to take our power prices up to german levels it's going to take 3x it's very regressive so nobody's we're talking only about the benefits of these kind of things we want to do but not the costs and that's that's the struggle i think that you know we've seen the yellow vest protests in france Mm -hmm. when diesel prices get to a certain level that people start to riot. So, you know, if you wanted to truly pass on the costs of carbon, for example, you do it at the gas pump and it would say CO2 cost and there'd be a 50 cent line. And the reason that's not going to happen is because politicians will lose their jobs. So when it comes time to pay the piper for this stuff, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, even Democrat Warren Buffett came out and said, I'm going to spend $8 billion on gas fired power plants in Texas. Well, to solve this power that's, liability that, that's problem. That's where I just say is that I don't I don't see the olive branch coming from I don't see an olive branch coming from this uh, the administration to say this is how we this is how we get you know here's how to bring in the industry here's how to do this and I hear the you know Biden's speech last night he said he said the same thing in every speech of that when I say think climate change I think I think jobs and you know and I think we're going to build uh, electric we're basically he sees jobs in building new transmission lines and he sees jobs in building um, charging stations. Well, I could go build a road with a handing a bunch of people shovels and paying a minimum wage, but that wouldn't be the best well, or most efficient I allocation mean, of capital. It's just like, so it's just literally like building gas stations and getting all your crude oil from Saudi Arabia and Iran like that. No, you you can't just great build the electric charging stations. And that is needed. You, you certainly have to BP talks about in their earnings call. You certainly have to have, 
electric charging stations in order to have EV adoption. I totally get that. If that's what you, if that's your policy and you want to do it, but you're not producing the batteries. So do not, do not lie to the American populace and tell them that you are consuming. I mean, you're actually taking the China route. China typically will not build, you know, the money tech behind the iPhone and they would slap the sticker on it and then they would sell it. And increasingly they did more and more the components. Well, you don't uh, get the uh, money from emissions aren't lies though. I know, but you don't get the money from that. So we're not, we're not capturing the, the value chain, the, the money piece of all this. If we're not, if we're not making the batteries and you know, if we're not mining them. And I know that there's been more talk, I think, the Secretary of Energy Granholm, and well, we can pivot there for just a second because I, I have to pick a bone here. She has mentioned, you know, w wanting to mine for for lithium and mine for things in the U.S. I I think that's hard. Um, I saw that there's a if, if you look up mines in the U.S., most of them are um, there's protests for them, right? From environmental communities, the Pebble Mine in Alaska, um, which is a copper uh, mine, to my knowledge. I mean, so I think it's going to be really difficult for a lot of these mines to actually get traction in places like the U.S. Um, I think it could actually it, you could definitely this could be the olive branch to a coal, mi coal mining communities and other mining communities where you can certainly take that knowledge and they can mine for this stuff. And this isn't just pure grain tech. Right. I mean, copper and everything is going into all kinds of technology. So this has um, cross pollination. But, you know, some of the comments that that our secretary of energy Granholm has made um, have been concerning. And like it, when she's talking about line three and line five for, I believe it's line three for Enbridge. And she's saying, you know, she, she I think she conceded that she doesn't have, um, she's not going to weigh in on whether or not that pipeline should be, should be there. But she said she wishes that we would be transporting hydrogen in those pipelines instead of, um, instead of crude oil and crude oil products. And I thought, well, honey, hydrogen doesn't just go into it's a it's a different molecule. Um, so it's a different size molecule. Um, we don't have it in abundance. We have to create it. We have to strip off the oxygen or we have to strip off the carbon from it. Um, and if you put it in the existing pipelines today, it would probably blow up. So you have to create a pipeline system to do that. So. I don't know if she doesn't, if she just doesn't know what she's talking about or if she is so intent on it. And she said, we're going to lower the cost of hydrogen by 80%. It is not the cost that's the problem right now. It's that we don't, we, we produce and consume most of it at refineries. It's, it certainly costs a lot because you have to use some form of energy or electricity to make it. So I'm not anti-hydrogen either. I'm just saying it's, if you're, if you're trying to use it tomorrow, the system just doesn't exist. It's just that you have to let the tech build up. And I think she's trying to support the things that do it, but you also have to have the network to adopt it. Again, I tell people, listen to the two, two hydrogen podcasts on the energy transition podcast. They're really good um, to actually give you sort of some of the nuts and bolts behind that. Um, but that's my digression from Granholm. I won't even get into her. Yeah. Well, her. just to follow up, you mentioned the lithium mining. I mean, Nevada is probably the best place to mine in the United States. There's not a huge population density. It's pretty arid, you know, Nevada, right? The Thacker Pass lithium mine that's proposed, people are protesting it. Humboldt County, Nevada. It's not, a, not really a better place in the United States to mine lithium for our own use. So, you know, you can't have it's fairies and unicorns and rainbows without a little and lithium mine. And you should also give, this should be the olive branch of the coal community because they will back you on this. I mean, the coal community would go, I, I think it was uh, it was the governor of Wyoming and the senator that said, hey, we have uranium in Wyoming and everything. I mean, mm. they have this stuff. So the mining community, it would certainly be for, well, that, Yeah, that I mean, that is ultimately the true test of whether climate is an emergency or not is someone's position on nuclear power. And we should say adieu to... Indian Point, which is shutting down on Friday. 
Is any it's shutting down on Friday? This is yeah. the New New York facility. Yep. So this is an interesting one, and we we've mentioned this before, but from my knowledge of this is like so you do have folks on 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 very varying spectrums of how they see this new this nuclear plant facility, and I would say varying views on nuclear within the within the progressive climate change community, the energy transition community, and folks that really want to move the needle on this is that a lot of them are not for nuclear, a lot of them are for nuclear, many of them are just solar and wind, and that's what they want, but this power plant folks say well we should just keep it going it's been um it's been extended 10 years so i think it's very expensive to keep it going i don't think it's hard to keep it the life has been extended a lot than it should be you do still have like and i listen to bbc and i hear them talking about fukushima still because fukushima they're trying they no longer they've tapped out the water levels in the plant to hold so they have to start dumping the water into the ocean and people are freaking out that they are just now getting people to eat the fish again and they say it's fine well in europe they apparently they dump water into they dump the nuclear water into the ocean as well so it, nuclear is a it's nuclear. It comes with the risks and everything, and you do have this. You do have to deal with this this sort of water, which no one, I guess, really likes to talk about. Well, it's the we just- safest form of power in terms of mortality, and the concentrations are very low. And we still have this psychological. I mean, it, you probably no, saw Chernobyl on HBO. It was like scare tactics up. Yes, it was a horrible accident, but you know, honestly, the psychology of nuclear is the thing that prevents it, and the overregulation. I mean, so I have. No uranium stocks, but if if you truly believe that carbon is the ultimate threat to mankind, you should be building nuclear power plants like crazy. I just don't know if the regulatory and this is again where the administration will be having to figure out FERC and they'll have be figure out these regulatory things of eminent domain because um, we also and just uh, the. Air quality standards, right? The reason that it's so hard for a new refinery, we've talked about this and, and cars, new, you know, diesel cars to get into the U.S. is we have very stringent NOx and SOx regulations. And so, and just the, the regulatory burdens and the permitting to build a new nuclear facility, you would have to change everything. Um, and this, there is some reason why they're doing this federal, this oil and gas leasing, because they do want to use, put a lot of renewables on federal land. And yeah, that's I, I'm not against like putting wind and solar on federal land. Like, just don't ruin you know the landscape of Wyoming. I mean, nobody is going to love driving around a. Yeah, a um, lot of Wyoming is. It is, and it's windy. Wyoming is also <laughs> extremely windy. There, there are a lot of places that this can totally work. So I get that. It's not but, all Jackson Hole. <laughs> it's not well. Jackson Hole is not Wyoming. Just for uh, the folks of us well. who are, the folks of us who are actually from Wyoming. It's it's not. Uh, so. Is this a is this a natural point that you want to? Oh, I don't know. I was just going to let you keep going since every time I try to segue, you cut me off. But yes, let's talk about the BP earnings call, please. Um, well, we've uh, we've talked about this U.S. hearing on federal land, and I think with this, given and that digress like crazy into nuclear power, and digress like crazy into nuclear power, she just winds me up so much. Yeah, you know, I got to say something. I would is, normally rant about that. This but. is good. Uh, so we're actually this is going to be because uh, there are some things going on within within uh, digital wildcatters, and they have some time constraints on things. So this is going to be a two part episode. I like how she's throwing Corley and McClellan no. under the bus here. Uh, this is going to be a two part episode, <laughs> and we're, so we're going to wrap this one up, and we're going to continue to talk about the BP earnings call and the Mohammed bin Salman interview, which is awesome. So all right, episode seven. two coming up later.